Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Vince Miller spent many years as a pastor, an evangelist, and a missionary, not to mention 20 years as president of God's Bible School and College in Cincinnati, Ohio. This sermon was preached in 1994, and he titles it, Dwelling Deep. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, and on. Thank you, Brother Anglin, and um, we certainly appreciate each one of you who are here this morning. We, um, we always realize that we have somewhat of a captive audience here at God's Bible School. In other words, you'd better show up for chapel, huh? <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. I don't know of a better place to be found than in the house of God on a Sunday morning. We have a subject that is always laid close to my heart, and uh, it pertains to a group of people. It's referred to in the scripture, and how typical it is for this day that we live in, this subject that I wish to speak on this morning. You'll find it in Jeremiah 49, the seventh, the eighth verses, the 49th chapter of Jeremiah. Could we stand? For the reading of the word. And then for prayer. Jeremiah 49, the 7th and the 8th verses. Concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman, is counsel perished from the prudent, is their wisdom vanished. Flee ye, turn back, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him the time that I will visit him. Our Father, as we come to thee this morning, we pray and ask of thee thy spatial blessings and for thy help. We have always felt very humble when it comes to preaching thy word. First of all, that you would call us, and secondly, that Lord, we stand so desperately in need of your touch and anointing and presence. So I pray thee this morning that thou would come and help the human, that thou would touch our hearts and anoint us in a spatial way. 
For, Lord, we need help from thy word. Our hearts need to be encouraged. We need to be lifted. We need a vision. And we certainly, certainly need that touch that, Lord, causes us to serve thee with vigor and determination and a great desire to please thee. So come and help us in that capacity that will lift us and give us grace and victory, for, Lord, thou art able to do so. And from what we read in thy word, thou art willing to do so, if we will just be thy servants. All these things we ask in his name, and amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you would study the scripture, and uh, then... Uh, Go back in your history books. And I like to make those connections at times, and especially when I'm studying um, a, a, a subject such as the inhabitants of Dedan or the Dedanites. The, when the prophet Jeremiah, and if you will read in that latter part of his book, you'll find that he was making a lot of prophecies concerning the various tribes or races or nations. And some of those nations were not large, maybe an encompass to a certain area that may have been uh, just uh, uh, a few thousand acres or maybe a uh, hundred thousand acres or maybe a portion, say, of Arabia or a portion of some country like Syria uh, or Iraq as we know it today or Jordan as we know it today. But we find that here this, this people, they were Dedanites, they were called Dedanites, the descendants of Dedan who descended from Cush, but they were a nomadic, a nomadic group of people not necessarily being shepherds, they were not. They did not deal in livestock. Rather, we find that they dealt in, uh, in commerce. Uh, they were a commercialistic people. Their city, what they would call home, it was located in the northwest part of Arabia. And today, that uh, though then it was called Dedan, today that city is still there, and it's known as Al-Yula, and it still plays a prominent part in the northern part of Arabia. And so these were ancient people, and uh, very commercialistic. They had great caravans that traded from the ports of South Arabia up to Syria and the Mediterranean. Their city lay astride the well-known incense route which followed the Red Sea. And sometimes I think to myself uh, when I pass these counters at uh, McAlpin's or Lazarus or some of these other stores where it is uh, uh, counter after counter that uh, is filled with um, perfume. That's another type of incense. And uh, so we find the, these Dedanites, they, they, they were commercialistic people. And, uh, but they didn't deal in incense or, or perfumes, sweet-smelling aromas, no. Uh, 
They dealt in uh, precious jewels, rich adornments. And uh, they, they were a type of people, like uh, we have classes of people today. There are the, those that, uh, the Turkish who, uh, who dwell or who deal in, in uh, uh, rugs, um, Turkish rugs and, and uh, things of that nature. And uh, so we find it was with the Dedanites. They, they were spatialist in precious jewels. They would get them down there on the southern part of Arabia in the various ports. They would, they would trade for them coming up from the east coast of Africa and probably uh, South Africa. The natives, the nationals in those areas would, uh, would uh, have their minds. They would find those gems. They would trade them. And so as the trading would go, would finally reach the coast. And from the coast, uh, these Arabian dhows, these ships of the Arabs would, would come north. And there we find that the Dedanites would, uh, would trade for these diamonds and they would take these precious commodities up north on this particular route that they traveled. Their caravans traveled constantly. And as I was reading this passage of scripture years ago, I, I began to try to find out a little something about these inhabitants. For there were some characteristics about them that uh, to me was, uh, well, were, were typical of, of the church today and shall we refer to as the church in the yesteryears for we find that the scripture speaks of of, uh, of precious jewels and we have songs that refer to precious jewels and the souls of men are referred to as precious jewels and we find these Dedanites they traded in this commodity the church today as in the yesteryears, our commodity is precious jewels, the souls of men. That's what the school is here for. That's what I'm here for. That's what you're here for. I trust. And that is to learn more about the Son of God that we might be greater examples uh, to the world around about us and that we might be soul winners for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That we might enlarge his kingdom by finding precious jewels. I've seen those that have come to this school that some would have said they'll never amount to anything. But I remember of a young man who one time they said he would never amount to anything. In fact, there was one precious sister in the church that done her best to see that he was ran out of the church. And on occasion, she would request prayer that God would deliver the church of this young teenager that was a regular rascal and was having such an undue influence upon the young people in that church. And she prayed and she fasted for that, for that request. Well, I wouldn't say she was a diamond hunter, would you? Uh, and there's many a person who has stepped over precious jewels I know here east of the Mississippi River, down in the south, that uh, there was a man who found a, what he thought was a heavy stone and took it out of a creek bed and took it up to the house. And they used it for many, many years for a step as they stepped from the house on out into the, uh, to, to the yard. But they, 
they misunderstood. They didn't understand the value of that stone. For one day a man came along, looked at it, and told them that that stone was gold. It was a gold nugget and the largest that was ever found east of the Mississippi. And yes, there are people that step over valuable things in life. They ignore those things. They don't realize just how valuable uh, those things are, and especially the, the value of the human soul. And oh, how I've thought of that so many, many times as I've looked upon the faces of young people, and I've thought to myself of uh, the, uh, the, the value that there was and the potential that there was in that young person's life, whether it was a young man or a young lady. And time and again I thought, uh, here might lie a precious diamond of great value if only they would yield themselves to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or if only we as Christians would recognize the value of that soul. Who knows, who knows, dear heart, the value of a human soul, the potential that lies there. What a great servant that they might be. What they can do for God's cause and God's kingdom. We find that in many, many illustrations in the true, true stories of the lives of different ones that were saved. Some out of the quagmires of sin. Some from the depths of sin. Who became great songwriters. Others who became great ministers of the gospel. Others great missionaries. And who made their mark in the kingdom of God as well as in the social sphere of this world because of the accomplishments they made for God's cause and kingdom. But I think of this precious woman who thought she was doing the church a favor by helping to pray or having them to pray that, this, that the church might be delivered of that young man. Well, that young man stands before you this morning and I've often said that God misunderstood that lady's prayer. And he saved me instead of running me out of the church. And the very young people that I was supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, the sons and daughters of the, the members of that church that I was supposed to be contaminating, uh, those very young people fell in an altar prayer under my ministry. And we became one of the greatest young people's groups there in the city of Indianapolis among the pilgrim holiness people. Yes, we never know what a word sown in season or reap in harvest. One never knows when they deal with the souls of men what is wrapped up within the bosom of that person. And so it was with these people, these Dedanites. Their caravans for many centuries traded back and forth. And I thought of the church of Jesus Christ and how that we deal in a precious commodity and if there was ever a time that we needed to be busy in God's cause and kingdom in dealing or in trading with this commodity by investing our time and our means and our efforts in the salvation of souls. But I hasten on here. That is just a, maybe a thought in passing that they, they dealt in precious jewels, that they, uh, they were nomadic to the extent that they traveled constantly in dealing in these commodities, that they were known uh, throughout the, the Mideast and uh, that they were a very famous people. But here we find that Jeremiah is prophesying. He's prophesying concerning a certain class, a certain group of people. 
a certain race of people, a certain nation that dwelt in, in the Mideast there, in the northern part of Arabia and close to Israel. We find that the Edomites were descendants of Esau, who was uh, a descendant of Abraham. And uh, we note that these Edomites, they dwelt in the area that was, uh, that was dominated by the Edomites. But here we notice that Jeremiah is prophesying concerning the Edomites. He is saying here that uh, uh, that uh, is wisdom no more in Timan, one of the major cities of uh, the, the uh, Edomites, and was known for its wise men who dwelt there. Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? And sometimes when you see people playing fast and loose with God, and uh, so loose with their morals, and and seemingly so inconsistent in their life, you think to them yourself, do they have any sense? Do they have any wisdom? Don't they know what they're doing? How they're throwing their life away when they could amount to something? And this is true not only in the spiritual, but this is true in the secular world as well. We see people who, uh, who uh, have great opportunities, but it seems that they throw these things to the four winds. And then they finally are impoverished because of their own foolishness. And that is true also in the spiritual sense. When you see young people and older people as well who fail to pay the price, who play, play fast and loose with God, who are inconsistent in their ways and seemingly they don't care about the tomorrows. Their inheritance is like he of old, Esau of old, who sold his birthright for a porridge. Uh, for a, a, a bowl of red beans. Yes, I notice here uh, that so it was with the Edomites. And we find that the God is speaking through Jeremiah, not to the Edomites in, in a way, yes, but in another way, he's speaking to the Dedanites. For the Dedanites were a respectable people. They were honorable. They were honest. They were upright. In fact, we find that Kiel and Ditch, uh, Dietlich uh, in their commentary spoke of the Dedanites as being the Abrahamic Dedans. And so we find that God is warning the Dedanites. He's telling them to beware. He's telling them to take heed. He's telling them to walk cautiously because he, what he, he is going to do uh, to the Edomites. He's going to destroy the Edomites. He's going to punish them for the rebellion. He's going to punish them for what they've done to Israel when Israel uh, was fleeing from Egypt and crossing the wilderness and how they had uh, done their best to, to uh, uh, fight them. And uh, they would, uh, when the Israelite main force of the Israelites would pass on, those that were in the back coming up, they would attack those that were in the back and then they would run after killing many. But God sees those things. And God saw what the Edomites were doing. God warned them then, but also he is warning them now through Jeremiah. God is going to punish them. And because of that punishment, because of that judgment, because of what God has said in his word, we find that he then in, in turn warns the Edomites. He tells them to flee ye, turn back, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan. And that is certainly true today as it was in those times. For we find that if there was ever a time that Christians uh, need to be separated 
uh, and to dwell deep in the grace of God to be separated from the world. And thus it was their separation from Edom and their dwelling in some secret place of safety would be their security. But I find that as this same holds good in the Christian life today, there is a need for clear, definite separation from everything that, that is not in the line of God's will and to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. People that dwell, that play fast and loose with God, you'll find that their liberal, uh, their liberality in the things of the world would cause them eventually uh, trouble and finally bring spiritual disaster upon their soul. Amen, Brother Miller. Yes, I think of over there when, when uh, the wise man said, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil and rend the vines. You'll find that the uh, foxes in the Mideast, they loved the grapes of the vineyards. They would go in and they would ravage at night. And so therefore we find that they would build stone walls around to keep the little foxes from getting in. Or they had a certain plant that, that they would plant. plant. Uh, and it was a bush. And it was very thick. It was thorny. But sometimes those little foxes, they would dig in underneath the roots and burrow in and get into the vineyards and they would there devour the grapes and, and they would rend the branches, so to speak. And so we find that the scripture tells uh, even there in the, in the wise words of Solomon that, uh, that we should be careful about our vineyard. We should watch over our vineyard. We should keep the walls built and secure. But too many times we find a little thing here and a little thing there. We start lowering our standards. We start allowing things uh, to happen in our life. Those things at one time that we had convictions against. Uh, but now we become more tolerant. Thing, time has changed and things don't really mean that much anymore. Say amen. amen. I hope I'm not boring you. And you'll find that in time, if a person is not careful, if they do not keep those walls of determination built and secure, they do not watch for the burrowing of those little foxes, those faults, those shortcomings, those things in the flesh that attacked us at times, those traits in our life, if we're not careful, they can become big things finally. A little thing here, a little thing there. Maybe a little dishonesty in our income tax report. Maybe being a little liberal and taking something that really we shouldn't take and it doesn't belong to us at all. Like one fella, he told about the time that he gave a fella uh, some peaches and he said, now he said, you take this bushel of peaches and, and, uh, and uh, go out and pick your bushel of pig peaches and you can have it. And, so he came back and that fella uh, was, was coming out of that, uh, that orchard with this, uh, this uh, basket of peaches. And he said, I tell you what, I think he had more on top of the basket than what he had in the basket. But he acted very, uh, you know, he acted like uh, that he was, uh, he was guilty. He didn't want the owner of the vineyard or of the orchard to see what he was doing. Well, you know something, uh, dear heart, uh, don't take advantage of people. For it has a tendency to do something to your nature and to your character. When somebody does something for you, be appreciated. And do your best to repay, leastways with respect. Amen, Brother Miller. 
I tell you, character can be a wonderful thing. But character can also, uh, the loss of it, it can also uh, drive a person uh, down and, and cause them uh, to fall back or go back into the world. God help us to maintain an established life according to God's word and according to our conscience. Yes, we find here that the Denonites were in danger. And we're in danger if we don't dwell deep in the grace of God. We need all the help we can get. We need to watch ourselves, and we need to beware. We need to live cautiously and walk softly before the Lord. Oh, God, help me. Amen. God, help me. What we have to say about people, our reflections on others. Amen, brother. God help us. Well, you'll find that anything that detracts you from God and from his service, anything that robs you of your love for the Lord and Savior, anything that robs you of, of working in his kingdom. How many times have I seen uh, preachers who have got hang-ups and, uh, and uh, who, who had ability to do things and ability to make money, so to speak, and they become detracted and they, and they start, well, I can, I can help the kingdom by going out here and making this money and I'll give more to missions and I'll, I'll give more to this and I'll give more to that. But before very long, you'll find that they have a nice brand new automobile and it keeps going up in the models and, and uh, pretty soon they have a better home and pretty soon they have better this, better that. They have a boat, they have a motor home and, and it's this and that, but the kingdom is not prospering because of their efforts and they're using those means to better themselves. But I tell you this, I've thought time and time again, and you know the devil has tried to get me into that trap. The devil has tried to get me into a situation where I would be making money rather than preaching the gospel. But I'm glad that the Spirit of God every once in a while would wake me up, knock on my door, say, hey, Pence, you're going the wrong direction. It's not making money. It's preaching the gospel. I had a company offer a position to me one time, travel around the world, be a project manager. And they offered me a lot of things, money and funds. You know what I told them? I said, listen, and this was to the, to the president or to the son of the president and the CEO of, of this mechanical contracting firm, the largest in the world, by the way, at that time. And I told him, I said, there's only one thing with that offer. I said, I'm called to preach the gospel. Amen. Amen. Say amen. amen. And when you're called, you're called. Amen. The calling of God is without repentance. Yes. I don't know why we have deteriorated or we have slipped from that doctrine. And why we, today we read everything that we possibly can into that passage of scripture. Well this, well that. Amen. Some missionary go to the field and they're there for a few years and come back home and that's it. Some pastors preach for a few years and pastor for a few years and then that's it. Well, I know it's hard. I know it's sacrificial. Don't tell me I've come up that route. I've followed that trail. Anybody that preaches the gospel, anybody that has gone out and preached in home missionary churches 
and endeavored to pass them, uh, pastor them. They can tell you a lot of stories. They can tell you a lot of things. But I'll tell you this, dear heart, along the way, it may not have been fraught with finance and prosperity and so on, but I'll tell you one thing. Thank God I can go back to those places and I can see those various ones that, that hit the altar and pray to. And thank God they stand true to God uh, to this day. And I'll tell you this, one of these days, blessed be God, by the help and the grace of God when we make it. We're going to be meeting those people over there. We're going to say, thank God, here's another jewel that I brought and gave to the Lord. Here's another jewel. Yes, it costs money. Yes, it costs time. Yes, it was sacrificial to do it. But thank God, consider the consequences if we have not done it. You can be tight-fisted if you want to. You can be cheap and tight and chintzy if you want to. But I tell you what God blesses and honors a cheerful giver. God blesses and honors those that give to his cause and kingdom. And he'll not withhold his spirit from them. He'll bless them and use them in his kingdom. Hallelujah. Yes. In the olden days when there were constant feuds between the English and the Scots, those who lived along the borders of either country were placed in an unhappy, unwholesome situation. And then, and you say, why? Well, the English would go over and they'd, they'd go across the border and they would attack uh, the Scottish who were living along the border there and then in turn the Scottish would do the same thing to the English. You say, well, Brother Miller, if you were living back there in those times, what would you do? Brother, I would head, if I was English, I'd head south as far as I could go and if I was Scottish, I'd head as far north as I could go to get away from the border. And we have too many borderline Christians today they're on the border. Come on. That's why they have trouble spiritually. That's why it seems like they have so many cloudy days. Better, better to have a day, a dear heart, that is filled with anxiety for God's cause and kingdom than to have problems in your heart and your soul and your conscience continually bothered by the things you do and the things that you don't do, the sins of commission as well as the sins of omission. But you don't have to live close to the border. Thank God you can dwell deep in the grace of God. You can live where his smile and the stamp of his approval is upon your life. You can be 100% for God. Hallelujah. There were at least four classes of people, four circles those who came in contact with Christ. Jim, study the scripture. Study the gospels. There were four circles around the Savior. Remember the 70 disciples? And, and you know, when, when you study, sometimes there's not too much said about those 70. You know, they had hundreds and hundreds. He had hundreds and hundreds of followers. And you remember that particular occasion when he spoke about his death and and about uh, uh, his sacrifice and eating of his bread, uh, uh, of his uh, body and drinking of his blood and so on and so forth. And, and uh, a few other things and, and uh, many, many, many left him. And he turned around to his disciples and said, will you also go away? Who was it? It was Peter. He said, Lord, to whom can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Praise God. Peter saw, Peter knew. Yes, there were the 70 disciples, though. They were actively engaged in the Lord's work, doing his bidding, preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were successful. 
For the scripture says that the devils were subject unto them. This is the thing that sort of bugs me about uh, a certain class of holiness people who say the disciples were saved on the day of Pentecost. We claim that they were sanctified. They were filled with God's spirit. These people claim that they were sanctified on the day of Pentecost. I don't know what they call themselves. They do have a name. But no, no, here were, here were, here were these people. I believe they were justified. The devils were subject to them. They were followers of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God had endowed them with these graces. They even cast devils out of people. And uh, they were successful. The scripture says the devils were subject to them. These 70 were in a circle around the sea. He had sent them forth. He had empowered them to go out and do these things in his name. But then there was the 12 who were chosen by him, who knew in some measure what it was to have fellowship with him. For the, the scripture says they were with him. Did you ever think about that? What it would have meant to be with the Savior? And, and those 12 disciples, they saw things that, that you and I will never see. They beheld him in his glory. They beheld him in his beauty. They beheld him with his awesome power, how he touched the lame and they walked again, touched the blind and caused them to see and uh, we find that they, he touched the lepers and they were healed of their leprosy. He healed men of all means or of all manner of diseases. He even raised the dead from the grave. And these 12 disciples saw this. What, what, what glory they must have felt. What, what, what amazement they must have sensed and had in their heart and what they were beholding, what they were seeing. How I would have liked to have been there. When, they, when uh, we find that they fed the, the what was it, 6,000 on, on those hills, uh, Judean hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And, and I've thought about that at times. Oh, I would have loved to have been there and received a, a portion of that fish and a, a portion of that bread that that little boy brought that day. He didn't have much, but he had enough to suffice himself and to feed himself. But we find that here, Jesus took what that little boy had and fed a multitude with it. You might not think that you're much in life, but I want you to know this. If God can take a boy and use what he has to feed a multitude, don't you think that his grace in your heart and in your life uh, can, can help you that you too can be a blessing to a multitude? So anytime the devil tells you you're not much, you agree with him. But tell him you're just like that little boy. You don't have much, but you want to use it for the glory of God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. I think of the sister who in one of my churches where I pastored, she didn't have much. She only had a third grade education. She couldn't hardly sign her own name. She couldn't read good. She stuttered and stammered when it comes to reading. And, and, and she never read magazines. She never read newspapers. She just couldn't read. But I tell you this. I tell you this, when I went to ask her to teach a Sunday school class, she broke down and cried. She said, you don't know much about me, Brother Miller. Well, I said, I know one thing. I know you love the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that's enough for me. She said, but Brother Miller, I can't read. I can hardly sign my name. Her father was a cotton picker down and, and a sharecropper down through the south. He traveled with the seasons, you know. And there she would go from town to town, from county to county, 
from state to state following her father and laboring in the fields until she was a young teenager. And she got married young. Here she was telling me, I can't do it. I don't have much. I can't read. What can I say? Well, I said the Spirit of God spoke to me and told me to ask you to be a Sunday school teacher. And I said, I feel like God is able to help you. And you know that precious woman, that precious woman, she took the class. And every once in a while, my wife was the Sunday school, uh, uh, the superintendent over the junior Sunday school department. And when I would go down occasionally to see how things were going, and I'd go by her room, and uh, I could hear her uh, talking to those children. On occasion, I'd look in and I'd see her with, there with her, her arms occasionally around the children and uh, loving them and crying and weeping with them at times. But I could also hear, the, and hear her pathos and hear her teaching under the anointing of God. I would be blessed as I stood outside that door. Parents remarked of what their children were learning about Jesus Christ and the word of God. And not only that, they were getting saved. And again and again, we would hear them, uh, those little children praying that God would save them. Her classes expanded. We had to uh, put her in a bigger Sunday school room, then another bigger Sunday school room. Finally, we had to put her out into the open area we called the uh, second sanctuary there in the basement, a little old place. But I tell you, we packed them in, bless God forever. We had to put her out there. Her class got so large. Little as much, always remember this, little as much if God is in it. Never forget that. When you look at somebody that doesn't look like they're much, hey, you better take the, the grace of God uh, in, uh, in, in as an example of what God can do for that person. You better consider God's grace because God can do a lot with a person if they let him. I hasten on, yes? There was not only the 12, but there was the three. You remember the three when they went up to uh, the Mount of Transfiguration and there we find Jesus spoke to his heavenly father and, and his father spoke out. And I don't know if it was in thunderous words uh, uh, where he said, this is my son, hear ye him. But they were in awe at what they saw. They saw the face of Christ light, awe, light up and and they saw him in his transfiguration. They saw him in his glory, even before his death. So they were, they were ready to come down now, Peter, James, and John. And as they were coming down up off, off the mount, Peter said, Lord, it's been good to have been here. Thank God, it's been good to have been here. These three who were closer than the other nine. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up there to the mount. And you know, it was always my philosophy in pastoring that if I could get my people to pray and get them up on the mountain, I never had trouble with worldliness. I never had to preach on worldliness in my churches if I could get them to pray. We're praying people do not sin. That's right. Praying people love God. They love God and they, and they pray because they love him. And because they love him, they pray all the more. And as they pray, their lives come more in conformity to God's word and to God's will in their heart and life. And so it was with these three. Coming down off of the mountain, 
Thank God, Peter's saying, Lord, it's been good to have been here. But he said something more. And you know, I notice this is characteristic among those who get close to the Lord, that they're always zealous for God. They want to do something for the kingdom. They want to go out and, and, and accomplish something for, the man, for, their, for, for their Savior and for the kingdom. He said, Lord, let's build three tabernacles here. Let's go farther. It's been good to have been here. But let's build three tabernacles. Peter was energetic. Peter had zeal. And, but Peter was given an impetus there because he was there. He saw God's glory. Now coming down off of the mount, he wanted to do something for the kingdom. I tell you this, as you draw closer to God, there's a desire in your heart to do something for him. Whether it's by in your giving if you're a layman or in, 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 in your ministry that you want to win more souls, you want more doors to be opened, you want to see something accomplished in God's cause. Then there was the one who came nearer to him than any other, entered into the secret purpose of his coming into the world, and that was Mary of Bethany, for she anointed him for his burial. He said that wherever the gospel would be preached, that would be mentioned. Didn't he say that? Yeah, he said that. That's right. He said that. For there was a perception in that, that, in, in that woman's heart about him. Praise God. She knew he was here for a purpose, and I believe that she recognized what that purpose was. I hasten on. Several years ago, back in 87, I guess it was, the wife and I were traveling through the West. There was a, a man there, that, uh, uh, that uh, couple that we had wanted to visit, but this was our first time through the area, and so it being so far out there in New Mexico, north of Santa Fe, and about 95 miles to the north, uh, uh, north northwest, up in the the great um, uh, what, what do we call it? The um, uh, like in the Cumberland Mountains, I'll think of it in a minute. But um, uh, they were only they lived only a couple of miles from where the 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 Rockies were separated. What do you call that line through there? Huh? Continental Divide. That's it. Thank you. See, I'm getting old. I can't remember these things. Just a few miles from the Continental Divide. They had two, uh, they lived between two Indian reservations, and both of the reservations were Apaches. Now, if you know anything about Indians, when you spoke about the Apaches, they were the greatest guerrilla fighters the world has ever known. They could outrun horses. I'm speaking, of course, back at, before the turn of the century. And they were the ones that was most feared by the federal troops. For they were a deceptive, conniving people, bloodthirsty. But here he lived, right between these two reservations. The wife, I'll never forget, we took off that morning and we headed that way. I called him up, said, Brother and Sister Miller, I want to visit you. Well, all right, come on. You think you can get here? Well, I said, if anybody else has got there, we'll try to get there. I think we can. So we drove around, crossed the continental divide about a half a dozen times, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, we wound out on this road, and, and, and we, 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 we started in. I'll have to say, uh, the dust, the dust was about yay deep. And he told me later that if it was in the rainy season, that's one road that you couldn't travel on. It was impassable. Unless you had a 
four-wheel drive and, and then oversized cars. And then he said, you still got yourself into trouble. He said, again and again over the years, I pulled people out with my tractor or my team of horses. But we finally got there. And we had a wonderful visit. He stood about six foot seven. Then he had a 10-gallon cowboy hat and cowboy boots on. And he had to duck to go out the door to greet us of that trailer when we got there. Oh, it was something. It was something. Pinion, uh, pinion trees around. And, and we were up high. We were up high, way high. And uh, there in those Rockies, I was thrilled. And uh, so we went in. They had a meal for us. We had a wonderful time. And it, it came time for us to leave. He told us a better route to take. We were going up, I think, to Colorado Springs from there. And so as we started out and, and uh, we, we got just a little ways from, uh, from his, his, his house or from his trailer. He had a big, beautiful trailer up on the side of a hill. And he told us some of his history, how that back in 1922, missionaries from God's Bible school went out there and uh, asked if they could have a, a prayer meeting, you know, one of these uh, uh, cottage prayer meetings. And, and he said, well, yes, yes. They were over there working with the Apaches on both reservations. His wife was a postmistress. They're at their little store that they had opened up back in 1917. This was in 1922 now. And uh, they came into this little log cabin. There they got down on their knees. After reading the scripture and speaking and testifying, they got on their knees and they had prayer. And he said, you know something? He said at that cane bottom chair that he said I, I was praying in, he said, I began to weep. And he said, God came. And he said, my wife and I, and she was a full-blooded Indian. I don't know of what, uh, what tribe she was, but... She, in her day, she was a very beautiful woman. And it was even in her older years, in her 80s, she was still attractive. And he was very handsome, very handsome. He was in his 80s as well. He was quite a man. But I hastened. Both of them prayed too. 1922. Said if it hadn't been for God's Bible school sending those missionaries out here, we would have never got saved. They were large contributors to the school. But we started on left them that day, had a wonderful time. And going out along the road, we had just turned where the store, the corner of the store was located on, and that road going on back out to the east, that would have taken us over that dusty, dusty, dusty trail. I call it a trail, that's all it was too. And, uh, but I started out and we hit, we hit asphalt. And here was an asphalt road going out to another main highway about uh, 10, 12 miles to the west of them. And all of a sudden, to the left and the right, I saw these great, big, huge pumps for oil wells. And he had told me he owned 40 sections of land there. He said most of it lies behind here. He said to the south and to the north and then all the way west. And all of a sudden, I knew if I could give good offerings to God's Bible school. There were these big wells. He, he spoke about it. He said, there's a number of oil wells on our property, but they're all capped. He said, they're waiting for a day when they can get more money out of their oil. But I said all that to say this. 
those wells, and I'd read about it before, some articles in the paper, they had discovered oil throughout the length and breadth of the Rocky Mountains. The only problem was they couldn't get to it because you had to drill so deep. And the most shallow well, you had to get down about 15,000 feet. They started out at 30 inch. Can you imagine 30 inch drill and the great uh, tower that it took to handle that? 30 inch steel pipe that they put down into that well and it went down and down and down. But they said some of the most richest strikes of oil were found there in the Rocky Mountains. But you had to drill deep for it. And you know that's the way it is with God's grace. If you want his grace and you want to know the depths of his love, you're going to have to dig deep for it. You're going to have to drill deep for it, folks. And it's going to take some sacrifice. I think of this and I close. Back during time before the Civil War, there was, in the South, in Mississippi, I believe it was, there was a plantation owner and he, he was a Christian man had slaves and uh, he treated them decently if a slave owner could be called a decent slave owner why didn't he turn them free that's the thing I thought when I read the story but he told this, this one slave he thought a lot of him hard working fellow and he told him he said uh, he had heard about the strike of lead up in Iowa. He said, now, he said, if you can, you can go up there, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'm needing money. And generally when those plantation owners needed money, why, the first thing they done was sell their slaves. But he told him, he said, you can buy your freedom. Then if you make enough, why, I'll let you buy the freedom of your family. We had several children. We had a loving wife. They were Christians too. They loved God. And so the slave, he went north. He had his papers. His master gave him papers that nobody could claim him as a runaway or whatsoever. And he went to Iowa. And he worked for a whole year. He helped others, and finally, when he found out enough about lead mining, he could go on his own, and, and so he and another fellow, why, they went over here, and, and uh, they dug in, and, and uh, they, they, they found lead, and he got enough that he could go on and, and, and buy his own freedom. And finally, they ran, ran out of lead. There was no more to be found, and so uh, this uh, friend of his, uh, why, he left and went elsewhere to look for lead. And he did too. But he couldn't find anything anywhere. His freedom was bought. He could have cut it off there and gone on his way, forgot about his family, but he had a desire. He had a desire to free his family from slavery. So one day he began to think, I haven't dug deep enough. I haven't dug deep enough. Maybe I ought to try and dig a little bit deeper. And so he went back. For several weeks, in fact, almost a month, he labored. Finally, his, he was running short of supplies. He knew he had to do something. But he said, I'll work one more day. And he went in and he was working that day and he had his steel rod 
he was and, and what they would do, they would dig pickaxe and, and shovel and they would take the dirt and take it up. It was a terrible time. You only had one person. And he was by himself. But all of a sudden, the great finds of lead were always found in cavities. He was thrusting away at a given uh, given edge of, of, of the pit and all of a sudden, he, he, he pushed and, and he lost his rod. It went, uh, he, it went all the way down. And he heard it, the noise of it hitting the ground below, the bottom of a, of a hollow there, a pit, another pit. And so he hastily got a pickaxe and he shoveled. And he began to shovel and, and dig there. And finally, he got a hole. And he looked down in that hole. He lowered his lantern. And there he saw that the sides of that great pit was lined with lead. And so he went down. He began to strip the lead. The summation of the story was, and it's a true story, that that man not only found enough to pay for his family's freedom, he brought him up into Iowa. But it's on the state records. He owned the biggest mansion. Here, this black man owned the biggest mansion in Iowa that was built up to that time. And he was the richest man in, in Iowa for better than 20 years while he lived there. He lived off of the wealth that he found because he didn't stop digging. And I thought when I read that story, I thought, oh God, help me to get more God, more grace. Because there's, folks, there's wealth one never knows about. And I speak of spiritual wealth. There's potential. What great things can be done in God's kingdom if we're willing to dig? All right, let's stand. I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. It has been